right, we are starting the final chapter of 1 Timothy. It's what, a couple more months maybe in the, in the book? Uh, I think probably four more or so. We'll see. You never know when you get into the thick of it where you've got to say, well, well, we'll add another lesson to that. But we're not covering a whole lot of ground tonight because I wanted to stop and talk about this, uh, uh, this admonition that Paul gives concerning uh, slaves. Now, the reason why I wanted to kind of camp out here, and it's, it's a little more of a teaching lesson. Um, you know, we've got to get some historical context here and that kind of thing. But the reason I stop here is because there's a lot of bad teaching concerning the idea of slavery within Scripture. Um, there, there's a whole argument, talking point out there that the Bible condones slavery, that it is pro-slavery, uh, among many other misnomers. And so I just want to make sure that we're covering this from a biblical perspective so we can see what Paul is really talking about. And when you really understand what Paul is doing with first century slavery and using this metaphor, it really colors in how the New Testament uses the word doulos, slave, and we'll come back to that towards the end. So let me just read our text, um, and I'm going to stop even before the end of verse 2. But Paul writes, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have, who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. So let's give you a bit of an outline here so you can see what we're going to do. We're going to talk about those two verses, uh, and it's pretty straightforward, right? We don't have to spend a ton of time on that. But what Paul is building on, very interestingly, is what he writes in Ephesians chapter 6, which he wrote probably two or three years before he wrote this epistle. Same church, same city, same issue. And so I think we can, we, and he gives us a little more detail there, and so we can build there. Then I want to go back and talk a little history and talk about slavery in the first century, what it looked like, what it was, uh, what sla- how slaves were treated, how they became to be slaves, that kind of thing. And then talk about how slavery is addressed in the New Testament. And then try to bring it back with this study of the word doulos, which means slave, and really try to apply it uh, to ourselves as the New Testament writers do. So the problem with a verse like this in 2022 is that modern readers will often strip a passage of this, and they'll just say, ah, well, it doesn't matter what this is, this is saying because it has the word slaves in it. And it says slaves, and because the, the, there was slavery going on, it, 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 it condones it, it permits it, it tolerates it at best, and so we can just discount what's being said here. And, and, and the fact is, the reason why that's the case is because when we hear that word, one picture comes to mind. What do we think about when we hear the word slavery, right? We think of the transatlantic slave trade because that's the closest thing to our history that we've experienced. Now, I know there's slavery going on today in the world. We, I think we're all aware of that. Uh, but from, a, from an institutional perspective, when somebody says slave or slavery, this is the picture that comes into our mind. And, and probably rightfully so, because that's what we've been taught. That's the most immediate thing, and so we're very familiar with this kind of slavery. The fact is, there's 1,500 years, 1,600 years, 1,700 years separating what Paul is talking about and what we think about when we hear of, about slaves. And, and, and so when we talk about the transatlantic slave trade, it is the blight on modern history. It is, the, it is the worst part of, of the U.S. history. It's despicable. It's evil. It should be identified as such. There's nothing positive about it. There's nothing good about it. 
However, what Paul is discussing in the first century is not what we call chattel slavery, not pure chattel slavery. And what I mean by chattel slavery, chattel means movable property, right? It means that there are, that, that people are pieces of property. Now, I'm going to make, give you a quote from Aristotle later on where he identifies slaves as property, but that's not across the board. It's not to say that that was, uh, wasn't practiced by some people, but that's not normally what it is. Chattel slavery in the, in the 15th, 16th, 17th century was just that. Now, I'm not saying that slavery was good in the first century. Don't misunderstand me, that slaves in the first century were all hunky-dory about it. No, that's not the case either. But what Paul is talking about is not what we think about when we hear the word. A few reasons why. It was not based upon ethnicity. It was not based upon race or skin color. It was not to be practiced in perpetuity. You know, that, that, that's another great evil of the, of the African slave trade is that you're a slave and you're a slave forever and you can never not be a slave no matter what you do. And your children are going to be slaves and your grandchildren are going to be slaves and it's going to go on and on and on. And, and that's not the system that Paul is writing under. Uh, in, in Paul's day, it's not normally a permanent station, although there might have been a scenario in which one might be a slave for life, but that's the exception to the rule. And so for the critics who argue that the Bible condones slavery, I, I, this is where I would take him. I would say the Old Testament law is very clear on that, that the type of slavery practiced in the slave trade was absolutely evil. And let me show it to you, Exodus twenty-one sixteen, And it, the law says explicitly, he who kidnaps a man... Whether he sells him or he is found in his possession shall surely be put to death. So in the nation of Israel and in the covenant community of God, selling a man into slavery or owning a slave is a sin worthy of death. Now, obviously, in the law of Moses, there are laws concerning slaves. But he says right here in Exodus twenty-one sixteen, you can't buy and sell a man. You can't kidnap somebody into slavery. You can't force somebody into labor. So what, what, what can that tell us from a logical perspective? The slavery that Moses is dealing with is not this type of slavery. It's a different system. Furthermore, if Paul was addressing the nation of Israel when he writes this letter, it would sound much different. If there was a community in Israel practicing slavery, Paul would condemn them outright for violating the law. But he's writing to slaves who are existing within a pagan empire. That's an entirely different context when we look at it. So he's dealing with a situation in which both slaves and slave masters are coming to Christ. And think about that for a societal shakeup. You know, that's what's happening in places like Ephesus. And, 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 and how that should be addressed in the church. So now you have slave masters and slaves coming to the same church together to worship the Lord. And this is a, this is a different societal thing. We talk, we've talked about this in terms of uh, where Paul addresses the women uh, earlier on. I want women to come to church. I want them to learn. I want them to understand. The fact that he's addressing women at all is a revolutionary thing. The Christian church is the only one doing that. The Christian church is also the only one addressing slaves. Because nobody cares about slaves in the pagan empire. They, they don't mean anything, but here, they, Paul's going to show us here, they are like brothers in Christ. They are brothers in Christ. So we're going to treat them that way. And so let's not pretend that slave masters and slaves coming to the same worship service wouldn't be a, a, a strange situation. Some hurdles that you have to deal with. We've dealt with the Jew-Gentile problem. Now we've got to deal with the slave and slave master problem. And, and, and so think about that. You're coming to a church, it's an, and the church we know is an organism or an entity that's in the world, but not of it. 
But not only that, it's committed to ministering in that world. So how do you reconcile all these social things that are going on? Uh, and, and again, it's not, let's look at society and see how the Bible applies. No, we look at the Bible and then we apply it to society. We've got to make sure we've got that right. All right, verse 1. All who are under the yoke as slaves. We've heard about that yoke with the law and everything else in Acts chapter 15 just recently. They are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Now notice, he doesn't say, all who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor if they're nice to you. (laughs) Doesn't say that. It's, It's very much similar to what we see in the Old Testament where it says, honor your father and mother if they're great parents. No, it doesn't say that, does it? There's no qualification there, and there's no qualification here. Uh, One historian describes this situation like this. The only thing that slaves in the first century had in common was the fact that each one of them had an owner. A person's experience in slavery depended almost entirely upon the customs of the owner's family, the business, and the particular class of society in which the owner belonged, and the character of the owner himself. So we, we, could, we could take the, the African slave trade and we can, we can broad brush it a lot easier than we can broad brush first century slavery because it all depended on what the slave was doing, who his master was, how he was treated, what the economic situation was, all of those kinds of things. But we have to acknowledge that Christian slaves were in a, a, a difficult situation. If they were the slaves of a non-Christian master, which I think is what's being addressed in verse 1, they, they might very easily make it clear that, I mean, how tempting would it be to just every time you saw your master and go, you better believe in Jesus or you're going to go to hell. I mean, wouldn't couldn't it be easy to preach to your master, especially when he was doing things that were questionable ethically and morally? And so it would be very easy, you know, I'm saved, you're not. I, you know, you could almost take that kind of idea. And, and, and their, their Christianity might give the slave even a feeling of superiority in that situation, and that's going to create a very difficult working relationship. We'll talk more stuff in a minute, but on the other hand, if their master was a Christian, the slaves might be tempted to take advantage of that relationship. They're in tight with the master because we serve the same God. We're not like the rest of these slaves, right, huh, buddy? You know, you're going to go a little easy on me today, right? You'd have that. Or perhaps you, you don't work as hard because of that situation. You might trade upon that, that, that collateral that you have. You might have insufficient work. They might think that the fact that their master were Christians entitled them to special treatment, special consideration. So let's start with both of those. First one with the, with the slave that has an unbelieving master. And what's Paul's admonition to those slaves? Show your master's respect. He says, show them honor. And and, and in our own minds, we we hear that and we go, why? I mean, slavery's wrong. Why not stand against it in the home? Why not rebel against this master? Because, Paul says, there's something more important than your comfort. There's something more important than your self-interest. Disrespect and retaliation would be a mark against Christ. Because within this system, you are now unruly, you are insubordinate, you are disrespectful. And and, and if a Christian slave is no better than his peers, why would the master ever consider taking that faith on? Why would he ever even listen to that? You're the laziest slave I got. What's Christ doing for you? You're the most disrespectful slave I have. Why would I listen to you? And so Paul says, you have a testimony to keep within this household. Now we'll come back to this idea of the, the institution in just a minute. Verse 2 says, those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they're brethren, they're brothers in Christ. 
but must serve them all the more. You need to be the hardest working slave in the group because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. So in this case, both master and slave are followers of Christ, and Paul makes it pretty clear. Both Christian masters and believers are actually both slaves, but they're slaves to Christ. And so they ultimately have the same master. And so he says those who partake of the benefit, those who you serve, are believers and they're beloved. So the interaction should reflect proper respect, should, have, should include hard work. There should even be an element of, of love to that respect. I think it's very clear, it's very interesting what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't tell them to rebel. He doesn't say, hey, make the best of it. No, he says be the hardest working one in the group. Be a testimony even where God has placed you. He doesn't tell them to ask for better conditions, better wages. doesn't say to go on strike. He doesn't tell them to employ the power of positive thinking. (laughs) He doesn't do any of that. He just says serve well and exemplify Christ. But we ask, how could Paul abide a system of slavery? Why not take this opportunity to enact societal change? Again, I'm going to cover that more in a minute, but take with you this biblical truth. The Christian faith does not promote a release from present circumstances, Instead, it gives the believer power to endure those circumstances. It's not all about escape. It's not all about comfort. It's not all about even societal freedom or anything like that. Now, I enjoy our rights. I enjoy the freedoms that we have. I hope we get to keep them, but that's not guaranteed. Perhaps they get taken away. Will we still serve Christ when our rights are taken away? Paul doesn't emphasize individual rights. He emphasizes individual responsibility. We have responsibility as a Christian. Yes, you have rights as a citizen of the United States, but your allegiance is to, is to Christ. Your citizenship primarily is in heaven. And so the chief concern for Paul is the glory of God, not even the freeing of the slaves or an increase of privilege for the owners. He says it's about Christ. And equality before God doesn't guarantee that all human beings enjoy equal roles and life status and salary, and living condition, and even the country that you were blessed to be born in. None of that stuff is guaranteed. We're talking about allegiance to Christ. So Paul accepts a different status for master and slave. There are different roles, just like there are different roles for a husband or a wife or a parent or a child. What he says is if you're in Christ, your attitude needs to change in both situations. The master doesn't get to stay how he was. The slave doesn't get to stay how he was. Both need to be changed. Actually, turn over to Galatians chapter 3, because this is another verse that is oft abused. That I'm thinking about it. And we'll get to it when we get to it in Galatians. But look at Galatians 3.28. Actually, let me back up to, uh, let's say, 26, where Paul says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All right, what's our baseline? Faith in Christ. We are followers of Christ. A 27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed clothed yourselves with Christ. And then he says in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, what is Paul doing there? Is he saying all societal roles are now out the window? That masters are no longer masters, slaves are no longer slaves, males are no longer males, females are no longer females? Jews are no longer Jews, Greeks are no longer... No, actually, he's, he's establishing those specific roles. 
He doesn't say they've gone away. He says you're a slave in Christ. You're a master in Christ. You're a Jew who came to Christ. You're a Greek who came to Christ. You're, you're a male who came to Christ. You're a female who came to Christ. So it doesn't mean all the roles go away. Because the, the argument in a lot of churches are, well, look, this says there's no male or female, so women can be preachers. Well, we covered in 1 Timothy that doesn't work. And so what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that we are equal in our salvation in Christ. He doesn't say roles have changed. He says you've come to Christ all the same way. You've all come by faith, no matter which way you came, no matter where you were when he found you. Now what are you going to do that you're in, now that you're in Christ? Nothing's changed except your spiritual status. Your earthly status may still be the same. And so now what will you do in that situation? Harold Honer puts it this way, Christianity's emphasis has always been on the transformation of individuals who will in turn influence society, not the transformation of society which will then transform individuals. Now don't miss what he's saying there because that's really important. This is why the social gospel fails. This is why it doesn't work. It puts the cart before the horse. All the programs in the world, all the laws in the world will not change a wicked heart because they're still going to break the law. Right? So we can put as many laws on something as you can. It's still going to happen because the problem is sin. The problem is a wicked heart. And so that's the whole point of the gospel, isn't it? You can't save yourself. No matter how many things you come up with that could be self-improving things, it ultimately won't work. And we can't save ourselves collectively as a society. Israel had a king that was in a, leading in a theocratic kingdom. And they had all the, all the law of God, the perfect law of God. How did Israel do at following that perfect law of God? Like an F, F minus, right? If we were given a grade, terribly, terribly, because law can't save. That's, we'll talk about that in Galatians, right? That's, that's the point. And so what is the idea of Christianity? One person at a time comes to Christ. And if enough people in a society happen to come to Christ, perhaps they can enact some change within a society. And I think that happens in the reverse as well, as people walk away from that faith or never had that faith in order to, in, in, to begin with. <clears throat> so, back in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul has mentioned this before, so he's building. This is what he says. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And then he finishes that whole thought in verse 9 when he says, And masters, do the same things to them. All right, he's telling the slaves, respect, love, honor your masters. And he says, Oh, yeah, masters, you've got a job too. Honor your slaves. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Again, this is pretty revolutionary. Paul says, masters, put your dignity on the back burner. Care about your slaves more than yourself. What? Who does that? They're slaves. They're, they work for me. They're my, I mean, people try to make this, this parallel between employer and employee. It's not a good parallel. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't respect your boss, and bosses shouldn't treat their workers well, but this is a different sort of level. This is, there is a, quite a divide here. You know, slaves and slave masters aren't going out to grab lunch together. You know, that, that's not happening. This is a societal divide. Paul is commanding those in a position of basically absolute power to humble themselves in dealing with slaves. This is a big deal. This is a big ask. And, and, and the fact is that all the slaves in the Roman Empire were not all treated humanely. 
And if we broke it down to the basics here, they have no legal rights. The masters can physically beat them. They could brand them. They can abuse them. And many did. Depending on where you ended up as a slave, if you were sentenced to a life of labor in the salt mines, your life probably wasn't going to last very long, and your life was probably going to be pretty miserable. But Paul says to these slave masters, the ones who claim Christ, you have to live differently than everyone else. And the slaves that are serving those masters must do the same. Let's jump back into the first century a little bit. We have to understand that in the first century in the Roman Empire, slavery was a pervasive social structure. It was so commonplace that its existence as an institution was never seriously questioned. There were not abolitionists in the first century. Now, there might have been somebody that said, hey, when you have a chance, you should free your slaves. But no one was arguing for the abolition of slavery. That that wasn't going on. Again, I'm not justifying slavery. I'm not saying that slavery in the first century was, was all great, but we need to have the correct historical context. Slaves of all ages, genders, and ethnicities constitute a very substantial socioeconomic class in ancient Rome. I'll give you some numbers in a moment so you can think about the number of slaves that were there. How did people become slaves in the Greco-Roman world? Well, the most common way, were there were two of them, and I'd say it's number one on that list and number four. One is prisoners of war. Rome was in the conquering business. And when they went in and took over another nation, they would often take the best and the brightest from that nation and bring them back to their own place so that they could benefit from that service. And so many were prisoners of war. Others, the other common one is economic hardship. If somebody fell on hard times, they could sell themselves into servitude so that they could work off a debt, so that they could provide for their family at least in some way and get some security in a, in a place where they otherwise wouldn't have it. Of course, there are more uh, wicked ways in which people were slaves. There were kidnappings that went on. There were children who were born into slavery. Oftentimes, if an infant was abandoned, it's, uh, a family might adopt them into the family and treat them as a servant. That might happen. And, and, and the fact is we, we know about uh, the slave markets in Rome. There have been two unearthed in the city of Rome. But the city of Ephesus was a center for the Roman slave trade. Isn't that good to know and why Paul is writing these things in the letter to the Ephesians and in 1 Timothy? Three of the admonitions made to slaves in the New Testament, and I'll show them to you in a minute, relate to Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 6 1 Timothy chapter 6, and Philemon. Now, Philemon's not directly tied to Ephesus, but Philemon was from Colossae, which is right down the road from Ephesus. And remember, most of the people that went to plant the church at at Colossae heard the gospel from Paul at Ephesus. So Colossians and Ephesians, if you ever read them, a lot of parallels, a lot of the same things going on in those two places. And so even Philemon is connected, uh, you know, interrelatedly to Ephesus. Now, how many slaves were there? Well, they think that one-fifth of the empire's population were slaves. One-fifth, 20%. On the low end, they say 10%, but many say as many as 20%. Now, one historian that I read this week estimates that Rome alone, the city of Rome, had a population of one million people. And how big is that, relatively speaking? Well, no other city in Europe would reach that population number again until the 19th century. That's how big Rome was in the first century. It was New York City in the first century. It's a massive empire. And so in larger cities like Rome, Corinth, or Ephesus, as many as one-third of the population may have been legally slaves. 
and another one-third of those in that city had probably been slaves earlier in their lives. So why is Paul addressing slaves in his letters? Because there are a right many of them there. There are two types of slaves. The first group are called the Familia Urbana, you know, urban, that city, obviously. Those who belong to the city household. These slaves often worked alongside their masters as part of the household. I'll tell you some jobs in a second. The others are the Familia Rustica, those that were belonged to the rural household. Now, these slaves worked in the fields. These slaves didn't work side by side with the masters. The masters probably had large plots of land, and they had them doing agricultural work, and they would work under a foreman or an overseer in a different part of the field. It's largely the first group that Paul is addressing. Why? Because he's in the city. That's who he's encountering. Now, if Paul ran into a rustic slave out in the country, I'm sure he shared the gospel with him. But the ones that are coming to church are these urban slaves, these slaves that work in the households. They have access to the church. They have masters that might come to the church. They have access to the gospel. So that familia urbana would make up people like this, doctors. That slaves were often doctors, which is a weird thing for us because we kind of consider you got to go to school a long time to be a doctor. Well, in those days, doctors were often slaves. Why? Because when you took people from other countries after you conquered them, you wanted the smartest guys there. And what better use did they have a personal physician in your household in case and because you know people got sick in that in those days and oftentimes if you got sick you died if you didn't have a good doctor and so who's the doctor we often come across in the new testament dr luke so there are many that contend that luke may have at one point been a slave in one of these roman cities Um, they had they were teachers wealthy families wanted to provide their children with an education And so they would often bring in educated men from other places, and they would be slaves, but they would live in the household, and they would serve as tutors to the sons. The word, the Greek word there is pedagogos. Maybe you hear pedagogy in there. It was a teacher. It was someone who could relate those things to a child. Now, we will talk about that word again in Galatians because it's the metaphor Paul uses when he talks about the law being a tutor unto us to bring us to the gospel. It's that same image. Now, uh, if you study out that word, again, I'll probably talk about this more when we get there in Galatians, uh, but the Pythagogos was not usually liked very much. Like he had like, a, you know, kind of, he would carry like a cudgel with him and if your kid was out of line, he'd whack him, right? It was a different day, right? And so he would do that. And so oftentimes the, the reputation of the Pythagogos was hard, difficult, disciplinarian, kind of ornery sometimes, but you learned your lessons. And it was hard sometimes, but he taught you what you needed to know. He was kind of a drill sergeant, right? But you learned it by the end of it. And, and, that was, and you look back and go, well, that was valuable. I didn't like it when I was going through it, but it was valuable. It brought me to where I needed to be, and that would happen. They also serve as household managers. They could do economic things. Oftentimes, if a Roman soldier, an officer in the Roman army, brought back a, a slave, he would have to go back out on a campaign, and he would leave a slave in charge of his house to handle the economic matters and things while he was gone. They were also musicians and artisans, and we know about Rome, they like decadence. Right? They like good architecture. They like good art. They like good music. They're always having parties. They need those things. They need the guy in the corner playing the harp. You know, they need those things in society, and so they would often do those things. These slaves could also, in, if they were in a particularly wealthy household, these slaves might even be able to possess slaves of their own. That's how different this system is than the one that we know. It wouldn't be unusual for a slave to be more educated than his master. In fact, it was probably pretty common in Rome. Consider Roman culture. It was virtuous in Rome not to work. 
The, the, the goal in Rome was to do as little work as possible, let the slaves do all the day-to-day rudimentary stuff, and you get pampered. That's why when anytime they dig up a Roman city, you know what they always find? Bathhouses, gymnasiums, coliseums, stadiums, hippodromes. It was just stuff. Let's just do stuff. And if you see parallels in 21st century America, <laughs> perhaps we're a little bit Romish uh, in how we pursue these things. And, 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 and the fact is they're so integrated into the society that if you didn't know, they would often wear a toga that had a, a certain color that would identify them or a sash that might identify them as a slave. But if you just saw them in a lineup, you wouldn't be able to go slave, slave, slave. They looked like everybody else. And it was a diverse empire. And so it would be hard to pick them out. Any line of work a free person might do, a slave might do as well. And so they are very much part of the society. They also become part of the family. They become members of the household. Many slaves were intimately involved in every aspect of family life. They, they took care of the master's children, as I said, manages his house, house administered business interests. And, and, and the fact is that a faithful slave, in most cases, could look forward to receiving his freedom if he served his master well. Again, this isn't a lifetime sentence. It's usually a temporary thing. And if a master was very well pleased with his slave, he might just set him free when he, when, at any time. And in many cases, that slave would come in part and be part of the family at that point. And I'll come back to that at the very end. So just kind of put that in your, in your back pocket for a second. Um, however, let me stress again, slavery was not a pleasant institution. Not being your own man or woman is not the best case scenario in human nature. And so when we read about Aristotle in the first century, he says, or a fourth century BC, there can be no friendship nor justice towards inanimate things. Indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox, nor yet towards a slave as a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave. The, the dominant fact in the lives of slaves was that even if they were well treated, they were still possessions. They were still treated as things, and they don't have elementary rights as people. And just, so if you don't have rights, justice doesn't exist. And so it'd be very easy to go, you know what, I'm, over, I'm throwing off this yoke. I'm going to rebel against that. And so Paul is, is, is speaking very counterculturally or counterintuitively about that, because what is Paul trying to do here? He's not giving them advice on how to not be slaves anymore. He's giving them advice or instructions on how to live in a situation that they may be confined to, justly or unjustly, for a certain period of time. What do I do when I'm in prison? What do I do when I'm a slave? What do I do when we're being persecuted? And that's what Paul is trying to do. What do Christians do when times are tough? And he says, you got to represent Christ. Your testimony is more important than your circumstances. What's more important, your comfort or your Savior? And it's very easy for us to sit here today and go, yep, Jesus is more important. Well, we haven't been thrown into slavery. (laughs) We haven't been unjustly imprisoned. This is where the rubber meets the road in the faith. And again, as I said before, slavery affected everyone. Those in the church, perhaps even more so at Ephesus, it's been said that they fit into one of four categories. Masters, slaves, former slaves, known as freedmen, or potential slaves. (laughs) Slavery was a reality one way or another, for just about everyone who was in the church at Ephesus. Why do I say potential slaves? Because potential hardships, economic deals, was, were all, was always on the table. If you're a farmer, a, a severe drought could wipe you out. If you're a merchant, you know, you're, a, a fleet of ships goes down the Mediterranean and you don't have any, any wares to deal, 
your business is done and you're deep in debt, what are you going to do? You're going to sell yourself into slavery to survive. Now, the major difference between what we know of slavery and what Paul is talking about as slavery is this. Slaves could purchase their freedom. They could buy their way out of slavery with the help of their masters. This procedure is called manumission. It was available mainly for the domestic servants, the, the familia urbana, but there was no guarantee that manumission would be granted, but in often cases there was a possibility. And, and I'll give you some stats in just a second. By Paul's day, that was becoming much more common, that people were, becoming, were, were being freed from slavery at younger ages. He, and, and I'll quote 1 Corinthians 7 in a minute as well, but in 1 Corinthians seven twenty one, Paul says, were, were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you were able also to become free, rather do that. So what's Paul say? Well, if you're in slavery serve well. But hey, if you're given the opportunity to be free, that doesn't mean you have to stay a slave. Go ahead and get your freedom. That's a better thing. And so he encourages that within the the rules of the system. Here are the New Testament admonitions to slaves. Again, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, 1 Timothy, Titus, and 1 Peter. Again, we might be able to add 1 Corinthians 7 to that as well as a mention. Uh, Galatians 3 there are mentioned as well. But those four white ones are the ones that are tied to the city of Ephesus, directly or indirectly. And the fact is, in the early church, slaves were coming to Christ. It was an attractive gospel for someone who was sentenced to a life of slavery. And the picture of being a slave to Christ really resonated with people who were slaves to earthly masters. And so all focus on the behavior of the slave, these verses, and his or her witness for Christ. That's what Paul is concerned with. And and, and it's safe to say that Ephesus had a high number of slaves who had come to the faith. And so Paul feels the need to address it, both in Ephesians and in 1 Timothy. So let's move to that next question. By not condemning it, is Paul condoning slavery? Because that's the accusation that is often made from modern commentators. And why did other New Testament writers not criticize the institution of slavery or advocate the overthrow of the practice? Well, directly with Paul, Paul's more concerned with eternity. And, And he talks about that over and over again, even with his own persecutions. Suffering in this life is nothing compared to the joy of eternity. He says, keep your focus heavenward. In Romans 13, he's already written that, that, you, that we are to be obedient to the government. He, he's not going to contradict himself on that. And if Paul promoted the abolition of slavery, it would become the, 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 the free the slaves religion. And people might just join up just to have that benefit or to have that preached to him. He doesn't want to get the focus off the gospel. He, again, the testimony is everything. And consider <clears throat> where these people lived and what they were up against. And just to give you a picture there, that's the Roman Empire. Shortly after Paul's day, 2.2 million square miles, 50,000 miles of roads in that empire. 60 million people in that day claimed Roman citizenship. That's one, and if, if we just count the Roman citizens, if we just count the 60 million, it was, that's one-fifth of the world's population at that time. This is how big Rome is. Perhaps as many as 120 million people lived within the borders of the Roman Empire. So even if we talk about one-fifth of the Roman Empire being slaves, if we just focus on the citizenship issue, there's at least 12 million slaves in the empire. This is a large group of people. And and they're part of the economy. They're part of the society. So let's talk about the reality of that. Because of their numbers... Slaves were already regarded as potential enemies. If these guys all get together, we might be in trouble. 
because they've got numbers, especially in a place like Ephesus, where a third of the population are slaves. If there was ever a slave revolt, Rome dealt with it severely, mercilessly, and they would put it down as quickly as possible because the Roman Empire can't afford slaves to be rebelling. If slaves ran away and were caught, they were either executed or they were branded on their foreheads with a letter F. And the word F, the letter F stood for fugitivus. It was a fugitive. And so they would be identified everywhere they go as a fugitive slave. And, and, and for the church to have encouraged slaves to revolt against their masters would have basically been a death sentence. Go out there and get your freedom. Well, they're going to die. You'd be sentencing them to death if that's what you said. It would simply have caused civil war, mass murder, complete discredit for the church because what would the reputation of the church be? They're a revolutionary group. They're trying to overthrow society. They're, 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 they're a threat to us, which is exactly the opposite thing that Jesus said to Pilate when Pilate asked him, are you a king? Right, do you remember that? Have I talked about that conversation? I really like that conversation. He says, are you a king? And he says, are you asking me because you want to know or are you asking me because somebody else told you? Well, what's Jesus doing there? And I think I've talked about this fairly recently maybe, but he's differentiating. He's making sure he understands what Pilate is asking. Are, and what is Pilate asking? Are you a king? Are you a pretender king? Are you a usurper king? Are you a threat to Caesar? Are, are, is that what you're here for, to overthrow Rome? And do you remember what Jesus says? Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world. Well, first he says, you know, why do you want to know this? And Pilate says, my Jew. Okay, well, your people brought you to me. What, why are you here? And he says, okay, well, that's what Pilate wants to know if I'm a threat to Rome. And what does he tell him? Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world. If it was, my followers would fight, but they don't. Right? And then right after that, do you remember what Pilate says? So you are a king then. And what does Jesus say? Yeah, I am. And for this, I was sent into this world. This is why I was born, to testify to the truth. And so, what is it, so he says, I'm a king. And Pilate doesn't execute him. If you are a king in opposition to Caesar, you die on the spot. But Pilate comes out and says he's innocent. I find nothing wrong with him because he's not here to overthrow Rome. Same idea here. The church is not here to overthrow the worldly systems. Christ will take care of that when he returns. We are here to be a witness in the world uh, and bring the truth of the gospel to that world. And so let me find my place. I got off on a tangent there. How do I know that it would have been a bad idea to rebel against Rome? Well, all you have to do is study a little Roman history and look at the slave revolts. Probably the most famous is the Third Servile War, 73 to 71 B.C., Everybody's familiar with the Third Servile War, right? I probably don't even need to talk about it. Okay? Perhaps this will help, the Third Servile War. Does that help? That, that's the Third Servile War. Okay? We've got to go to Hollywood and Kirk Douglas to figure out the Third Servile War. You know? It's like you've got to go to Charlton Heston to understand the Red Sea. Right? <clears throat> Obviously, it was fairly romanticized in the Hollywood movie and all that. But long story short, the story of Spartacus. Spartacus was a gladiator, and this is first century B.C., uh, he led a rebellion of 120,000 escaped slaves. Okay? A good number of force. They ran up into the hillsides and they were doing guerrilla warfare and everything else. Eventually that rebellion is put down in 71 BC by a Roman general whose name was Crassus. Uh, if you know your Roman history, Crassus was the third member of the first triumvirate uh, when Caesar and Pompey took over about 10 or 11 years after this. But when he put the rebellion down, as a, as a message to every other slave in the Roman Empire, Crassus crucified 6,000 slaves on the Appian Way to Rome. So everybody on the road got to see 6,000 men hanging on crosses. This is what happens when you raise your fist against Rome. 
it's an effective deterrent to rebellion. The New Testament church leaders were not Spartacus. They were not going to sentence church members to that. And so, it, and, and if you really trace Roman history, it's really interesting as the gospel goes into the Roman Empire and, and, and it becomes more of an institution in the Roman Empire. Eventually, gladiator wars and all that kind of stuff get outlawed. And it's largely because of Christian influence over the next few hundred years. But <clears throat> building on that, overthrow of slavery was completely unrealistic. It's not going to happen, especially for a minority group, and minority might be putting it kindly. They are a very small group within a very large empire. They're not going to be able to do that. If the Christians had written against slavery, what is that going to do for all the Christians that are in slavery? Right? Like People are going to read it and go, yeah, Paul's right. Okay, that, we've got more important things to talk about, eternity, heavenly things. And, and, and then again, the New Testament epistles are written for Christians where they live. I'm a Christian slave. I'm dealing with an unbelieving master. What am I supposed to do, Paul? And Paul's trying to tell them this is how you live for Christ in that situation. That's the point. I think if this was chattel slavery, as I said, Paul would have been an abolitionist because that's flagrant wickedness. But in Paul's day, Christian slaves aren't in need of manifestos. <laughs> that's, that's not a helpful thing. They, they needed to know how to live for Christ in their circumstances. Uh, if, if they took on this battle, the young churches would be fighting the consensus of the Greco-Roman world. There is nobody that's going to side with them on this. And hence, any such attempt would be doomed to futility. They would fail. Slavery wasn't going anywhere. So instead of fighting a pointless fight, let's figure out how to honor Christ within this system. And, and, and that would have gained a, Christianity a reputation as being a subversive religion. <coughs> Interestingly enough, by the time of this era in First and Second Timothy, there were actually sweeping changes going on in the world of slavery, especially since the days of Spartacus that we read about a hundred years earlier. S slaves under first century Roman law could pretty much count on eventually being released. Again, manumission is the term. Very few people reached the old age uh, in slavery. And, and slave owners were releasing slaves at such a rate that Augustus Caesar actually had to institute limits on how many slaves you could free. There were too many being freed at once to provide for, and so he actually curbed that trend. Despite that, inscriptions indicate that almost 50% of slaves were freed before the age of 30. And so what can Paul say confidently? Persevere. There's a light at the end of this tunnel. While you're in this position, while you're in this station in life, serve Christ well. Now, that would be a tougher sell to someone in 18th century America who was cursed to this horrible situation of slavery their entire lives and their children were destined for the same thing. But in the first century, Paul can say, persevere. Hold on to the hope that you have. Serve your master well. It's a different, it's a different context. We can't just put those two things together. Now, 1 Corinthians 7.20 says, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Now, he doesn't mean forever. He just means right now. Why, if you were a slave when you are called, then serve as a Christian slave. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able to also become free, do that. Serve where you are. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. You may be in bondage, but you're free. You're freer than anybody else that you're serving with. Likewise, he was called while he is free is Christ's slave. You now have a master that you serve. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. In other words, your spiritual state is far more superior than your earthly state. Serve Christ where you are. In God's eyes, slaves aren't slaves. They're followers of Christ. And masters aren't masters. They're followers of Christ. 
earthly identifiers are, are removed by the blood of Jesus. Now, I might have a role in this world. You know, it's the same thing we've talked about in the marriage issue. Husband and wife, we are equal standing before Christ, but we have specific roles in the family that we're supposed to perform. And, and, and that doesn't change. So st- remain as you are, that's what Paul says. Trust the Lord to provide what you require at the appropriate time. Again, the New Testament writers were not social revolutionaries. Neither was Jesus, by the way. That's not what they were here to do. Now, ultimately, he will do that, but he'll take care of that in his timing when he rules. They didn't believe in overhauling social structures. They want to transform hearts. They don't want to add more laws. Their concern was the individual before God, and their focus was sin and rebellion against one's creator. What can we, re- what can we control? How we respond to the things that come into our lives. We can't control the things that come into our lives, not usually. We can respond how we respond, or we can control how we respond to them, how we exemplify Christ in all circumstances. This is where Philippians 4.13 comes in, by the way. That's what Paul's talking about. In all circumstances, I have the strength to persevere because of Christ's strength in me. A Connecticut clergyman, 19th century, Elijah Barrow said, the apostles, while they abstained from any interference with slavery in its outward legal form, introduced into the relation on both sides the brotherly love which so far as it actually prevailed, emptied this old and selfish system of the main part of its contents and gradually prepared the way for its outward informal removal. In other words, the spirit of equality and justice is in the New Testament. It's there within God, the heart of God's law. We need to understand that Scripture never commends slavery as a social structure. It's not rooted in the created order. It's never ordained by God. Scripture regulates the institution of slavery as it exists in society, but it's never endorsed or supported. The fact is there are some things that can't happen quickly. There are some things that don't end overnight. A lot of work must be done. And if we, we, we reverse the leaven idea, we usually think of leaven as a bad thing. Sometimes the Christian leaven ha- takes a while to leaven the lump and change the culture. And, and by the way, if you try to rush that, sometimes it makes it even harder and stretches it out. And the leaven of Christianity had to work in the world for many generations before the abolition of slavery became a practical possibility. Enough people had to understand why it was evil. Of course, we know that it was the Christian faith that ultimately ended the slave trade in the West. Perhaps you know William Wilberforce, who said that his great object in life from God Almighty was the suppression of the slave trade. 20th century Scottish theologian John Murray said all the seeds for the dissolution of slavery were sown in the New Testament. Wilberforce would have, uh, would have said the same thing. Um, it's about perseverance, and if you want to talk about perseverance, how about we look at Wilberforce? He took up the fight to abolish the slave trade in 1787. The slave trade itself in which the, the trading of slaves was abolished in 1807 by the Slave Trade Act. It wasn't finally abolished, the practice of slavery throughout the British Empire, until 1833. 1787 to 1833, Wilberforce fought for the abolition of slavery, and it ended just months before he died. Patience, perseverance, trusting the Lord. He exemplified that idea that sometimes it takes a while. All right, let's get to that last part of the outline. Slave in the New Testament. The word is doulos. It appears 124 times in the New Testament. It's got a compound form, sundulas' fellow slave. That's 10 more times. And what we see is that New Testament writers employ this imagery again and again describing their allegiance to Christ. And as we've talked about, it's an entirely appropriate metaphor in the first century. 
everyone would have understood what he meant when he said slave. They, they would have understood that arrangement. Uh, we've talked about it with, with the use of Christ's use of the cross. Well, that would have resonated with the first century audience because they knew the cross. They understood what that meant. We understand it abstractly. They understood it in living color. And if we understand this idea, what Paul is saying, it still holds sway for us today. Let's look at a few uses of doulos. Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now, what you find in most of your modern translations, it is not translated as slave. Now, it's translated as slave in 1 Timothy when he's speaking to slaves, but oftentimes in this context, it's translated servant or bondservant. And I think the main reason for that is because modern translators don't want us to associate it with the African slave trade because that's what we think of. And so I think they, they kind of steer away from that term. But if we read that correctly in the way that Paul really wrote it, I would not be a doulos, a slave of Christ. 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's bondservant or slave must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong. 1 Peter 2.16, act as free men. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. At least bond slaves is there. But what you can see from these examples is that Scripture is pretty clear. We are slaves of Christ. We need to get comfortable with that identifier. That's what Paul meant us to read. Uh, one historian states that slaves have three defining characteristics. One, their person is another's property so that they might be bought and sold although our master will never buy us or sell us. We've already, he's already bought us, so he won't buy and sell us again. Number two, their will is subject to another's authority. And three, their labor is obtained by another's coercion. So we belong to him. We serve him. He provides for us. We don't follow our will. We do his will, and we're subject to his will alone. We work because he allows us to work. We work because he commends us to work. The New Testament writers didn't hesitate to embrace the title. Romans 1.1, Paul, a doulos of Christ Jesus. Philippians, Paul and Timothy, douloi, slaves of Christ. Colossians 4.12, Epaphras is a doulos of Christ. Titus 1.1, again, Paul, a doulos of Christ. James 1.1, James, a doulos of Christ. Simon Peter, a doulos of Jesus Christ. Jude 1, Jude, a doulos of Jesus Christ. They were very comfortable calling themselves slaves to Christ. We need to embrace that understanding. And that's, I think, most clearly explained in Romans 6, where Paul says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? If we were to sum that up, we'd say you're a slave to something. You realize who you, you have a master. Let's make sure you know who you're serving. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, that's where we were, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So you are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. This is what Christ does when he buys us, when he brings us into his service. And that service, that slavery to Christ is actually freedom. That's how we twist the whole thing on its head. So we might be thinking at this point, what does this have to do with the believer in 2022? Well, I think there are both practical and theological applications. Here's one. Justin Martyr, church father, he said, Our Lord urged us by patience and meekness to lead all from shame and the lusts of evil 
And this we have to show in the case of many who have come into contact with us who were overcome and changed from violent and tyrannical characters, either from having watched the constancy of their Christian neighbors or from doing business with Christians. Do you get what he's saying right there? That when you persevere and exemplify Christ in difficult situations, people notice. And sometimes that's a mechanism for bringing people to Christ. That, that the Lord uses that to plant seeds. How do you handle your business? Are you trustworthy? How do you work? Are you the hardest worker at the job? More importantly, how do you handle stress, trials, a crisis that comes into your life? Because the fact is, as soon as you identify yourself with Christ, people are watching how you're going to react to those things. And your testimony will either exemplify Christ or it will discourage people from looking further into that faith. Your life is a testimony, whether you intend it to be or not. And I would just add this thesis for tonight. If you can't submit as a slave to an earthly master, you'll find it nearly impossible to submit as a slave to your heavenly master. If you can't submit to institutions on this earth, you will be very confused about submitting to a heavenly father. And if his reputation is more important than, or if your reputation is more important than his, then you don't understand our Lord. You don't understand what he's done. Right? That, that no matter what, his reputation matters more. So we obey and we serve because we know that as professing Christians, we carry the name of Jesus because others will want to learn more about our Lord when we are different. Mike Luce has testified to this and, and how people he has worked with when he went through that cancer and people said, how are you doing this? How, how, how can you have this attitude when this is what your diagnosis is? They're asking questions because he had made clear his faith. Because we don't work for earthly treasures. We're heavenly minded because we're commanded to do all that we do in love to the glory of our Lord. So we are loyal slaves to a perfect master who will never sell us, abuse us, or forsake us. And we embrace that state and we serve him with all of our heart, mind, and strength because he is a worthy master. He is a good master. And, and, and I want to wrap up. That kind of came to me. I, I, want to, I don't want to stop there because I want to go back to John 15 because Jesus gives us a great image here and I think this will really hammer it home for us this idea of being a slave. John 15. John 15, verse 12 is where we're going to start. Remember, this is right, this is the night before the crucifixion. And Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now look at verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves. Duloi. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. This was the process of manumission when a slave became a member of the family, a member of the household. He ceased to be called a slave, and he became a friend. That's that's the Roman terminology. And so it's a beautiful picture here in that you were a slave, but a slave is just a blind worker. A slave is just doing the work. 
And that's great. You get to be a slave in the king's household. But he says, you're no longer a slave. You're a friend. You're a member of the family. You've been adopted. And look what he says in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. Why? Because you're in the family now. Adopted you into the family. You were a slave. I brought you into service. That's a wonderful thing, but I didn't stop there. I adopted you. You're a son of God now. You're, you're in the household of faith. And, and that's the picture that Paul keeps coming back to. That you may be a slave on this earth. You may serve earthly masters, but you have a master in heaven that has adopted you into the household of God. We've heard the household of God already in 1 Timothy. That's the picture. What do we do in the household of God? You're a member of that if you believe Christ in faith. All right, let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> you are good. You're a wonderful master. And it is a joy to serve you. Lord, help us to see what you've saved us from. You've purchased us out of slavery to sin. Sanctified us as slaves to righteousness. Lord, may our lives honor you. May our speech honor you. Our testimony point to the reality that you have redeemed us. That we are born again through the blood of your son. Thank you for saving us, Lord. Thank you for your word. And thank you for the encouragement that you can give uh, first century slaves and 21st century churchgoers all at once. Uh, Lord, we give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.